Uh, I spent the day with my mom and her husband yesterday. Um, they probably had it, and I was very reluctant to go out there, but we booked it for two weeks, and they really needed to clean the house out because um, they have a new family member moving in. Um, and so we we had to, you know, throw away bookshelves, throw away a desk, a bed, all, all kinds of things, and they needed my uh, strong arms for that, or whatever, my arms at least. Um, and so I had a chance to talk to, to her husband, and I, I talked to my mother about an hour today um, about the virus, about the effect, and I told them both that I've had some, some anxieties related to the virus, um, or rather the effects of the virus. Um, and so when we actually got past the virus isn't that much the the deal here, but it's the, the consequences and, and the thoughts surrounding the virus. And my mum and I had a really interesting conversation today about, you know, what, what we actually should do in this situation. Because the people who, who are dying from or having severe... Uh, illnesses from the virus are a majority of them are over 70 years old um, that's sort of been established now I think and what, what we started talking about and I don't want to say this is her opinion or this is my opinion because because you know we had a conversation um, but we both started playing with the idea of us not doing anything at all as a society what if we would just go on as usual, treating this as, you know, a regular flu kind of. Those who are ill, sure, stay home, don't go into work. Um, the rest of you keep on working, keep on doing the, the regular thing. Um, and I think that's interesting in relationship to, to our conversation about the new normal, the going back to normal. What would have happened if there wasn't anything unnormal about the situation. And, and my, my sort of thought on all of this is that, well, if we, if we were to do nothing, um, we would have a, a far, far greater amount of people dying. We would have a far greater deal of people going to the hospital with symptoms from the virus, uh, quite severe, especially those over 70. Uh, and, of course, the other risk groups. We would treat those that we could, and we would let the others be. You know, because we can only do so much. Uh, there are only that many, uh, what do you call the, the breathing mm -hmm. aids? Respiratory aids, yeah. yeah. Ventilators. Um, and so a, a far greater number of people would fall off. They would die. <laughs> and my, my, my argument in all of this, if we would do nothing, what would happen apart from people dying? Um, well, we wouldn't lose any workforce or very little workforce. So the economy wouldn't take that much of a hit. Um, not even nearly as much of a hit as it would take if we, for example, closed down all of the schools, all of the nursing, uh, all of the preschools. You know, we couldn't put children 
anywhere. Um, so the, the the economy would take far far less of a hit is my um, conclusion from that. The second one is that I think the impact on people, our shared identity, um, as a society, would be totally fucked. I think that would give way for people to start wiggling the sort of moral compass that we have as, as a society. And I think that impact would be far more severe than the economy breaking down. Which then led me to, I think the biggest thing, the biggest takeaway we can, can derive from this whole corona crisis worldwide is the empathy, is the um, humanity and the um, friendliness towards humanity um, and the sort of solidarity that, that people are actually showing in times of crisis. Um, and I think that's, that's probably the thing that I've seen the most from people online saying, I've learned this from, from the coronavirus crisis. I think this is what we will take on from the corona crisis. And so starting us off on a riff, I would like to, to sort of bring all of that into conversation along with the question of how do you think if we, if we put those teachings, those lessons into practice post-corona, how would we how would we redesign society? What would we do when we sort of come out of the tunnel? The lessons being, and those those are the ones that I've sort of derived off of all of this very hypothetical scenario. Um, well, the lessons are actually not that hypothetical. Well, empathy and, and solidarity. We as humans are together uh, worldwide. Have you read Rebecca Solnit's book, Hope in the Dark? She's a quite interesting journalist or researcher and author. And she's... She's looked into big crises. So she looked into the, I don't know, the early 19-something earthquake in San Francisco, 1906, 09, 12, somewhere there. Um, and sort of other types of, of crises like that. And, and the, the Katrina, Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans and, and stuff. And... That's what she says we are. Humans are generous. Humans are caring. The most likely person to save you in times of crisis is your neighbor. Whether it's the house burning down or an earthquake wrecking your house or you need some toilet paper because there's no more toilet paper in the shops. The most likely person to save you is your neighbor. And neighbors do save their neighbors. Um, so 
I have sort of the sense that we know this. Many people know this. We know this. Most of us has lived through something or other, or many of us at least has lived through some type of, of crisis or trauma where we have had to rely on the kindness and generosity and care of others. But what I don't see is that sort of being, and I don't know how it would look like, but it's not sort of the basis of how we set up society. It's not the basis of the systems. Um, it used to be. You know, everybody in a little town would gather around and, and help one, one farmer build a, a, a barn, right? You know, it took you a weekend of everybody in the village doing that, and then that was done. Sort of, the so, sort of talco, yeah. talco way of doing things. Yeah, so it's, it's been that way, but sort of the systems that we have in place today, I mean, in Sweden, it's to a large extent do not interfere with the systems. That's what a lot of the, the sort of the messages is, um, which I think also became apparent in 2015 when we had lots of, of refugees coming here. You know, people took initiatives and, and sort of systems, authorities, you know, were like, no, 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 don't, don't do that. Stop, don't let us, even though the us there really wasn't sort of um, equipped to, to handle it. But I think it's it's interesting. I haven't I haven't given that thought any thought. Um, like you say that if we did nothing and sort of you have a lot of people dying off. It sounds horrible, but because we would sort of it's business as usual. Um, it's interesting that you sort of point to the fact that that would sort of wreak havoc with our image of ourselves as a society, as a, as a nation, as a culture. I think to the point of us having lived through a couple of crises, um, I was just sitting here, you know, sort of rethinking what, what crises I'd, I'd actually, I could remember. And from, from a point of view being born in 97 in Sweden, you know, I've heard about the 9-11. I was four at the time. You know, I, we, we've studied it in, in school. That's about as far as it goes. Um, the only other ones that I can, can sort of recollect or, or even get a grasp of is 
the financial crisis 08, which I don't think impacted me, you know, even closely as much as this one does. Um, the Utøya shooting in Norway. The um, attack in Stockholm, what, three years ago, two years ago? More, but yeah. Three foot, no, it can't be more. It's 2015, I think. It is? Two, yeah, 2015 or 16, but I think 2015, September, October, somewhere around there. Time moves quickly. No, that's, well, in that case, we're not thinking of the same. Yeah, the you're thinking of the truck. Mm. Yeah. No, oh, yeah, that one might have been. Mm. Well, I think it could, could be 2016, whatever. but it's not after 2016, I promise. Okay. Well, no, it's yeah, not. that makes sense. It's not. I know um, that as well. Whatever. I remember that mainly because my, my then girlfriend sat on a train and was about to leave just as all of this happened. Uh, and so I was in panic for her. Um, you remember the, the volcano on Iceland shutting down yeah, air traffic mainly. in 2014, I think? No, a lot earlier. 12? Well, okay. I was, I was in sixth grade when that happened, and we were supposed to take a flight to London. Mm. Uh, and so we, we actually, um, as a class, because it was a class trip, uh, we're supposed to take. Um, we were cursing the the volcano uh, every single day up until we could actually fly off again. That's the only only thing I remember. What I want to say is, as a twenty three year old, I haven't I haven't lived through um, that many crises, and there have been far less crises that have actually impacted me in the same way that as this does. I can't remember any of them, well, apart from possibly Utaya, where the magazines, the media was, was this turned up, well, the Stockholm one as well. Um, but I was too young to, to remember the, the financial crisis 08. Mm -hmm. I'm too young, well, sort of too young to remember the volcano. Um, I think my generation has a lot less of a relationship to crises, um, especially, you know, again, here, mm. in, here in Sweden, mm. um, which also makes this a fragile one for me as an individual. Mm. Yeah, it's easy to forget how important the historic perspective is. Say more. Well, you know, I think there are different uh, sort of angles on this, but I mean, um, we, the three of us live in Sweden. Sweden hasn't been at war for 200 years um, at all. You know, there just hasn't been any of that stuff going on. Uh, that's one thing. Uh, by sort of expanding that that um, 
that uh, that arc a little bit um, when you look at at at, at uh, you know in, in, we we kind of throw around words like terrorism and all these kind of things. I mean, nobody really recalls that in the seventies. Um, I think during the decade of the seventies in the United States, there were like two thousand bombings in the United States, domestic activism. Nobody remembers any of this stuff. Nobody remembers uh, the, the Red Brigades. Nobody remembers Bader Meinhof. Um, Europe in, in uh, the late 60s and 70s was pretty chaotic and there was a lot of violence going on. Um, and people were really quite uh, uh, concerned, you know. I mean, it wasn't like there were large-scale crises. There were small-scale internecine wars going on. Um, but just a few, uh, a few years before that, um, you know, in the, a few decades before that, finishing off in principle uh, 50 years of crisis in Europe that uh, starts around more or less 1910 and, and leads into the First World War, um, the, the birth of the Soviet Union, um, Russia collapses under the revolution, uh, the Spanish flu, the Great Depression, uh, the Second World War, uh, you know, leading into um, the events of 68 where uh, most of young Europe at your, that are your age are in uprising. I mean, there just about wasn't a university where there weren't Real and the, rights. And the division of Europe after World War II. Yeah, and, and at the same time, the creation of, of the EU in 52. Um, there's a lot of stuff going down, the collapse of, of uh, the dictatorships in, in both Portugal and, and, uh, and Spain. Spain. Um, very, very dynamic, very, very big shifts, you know, things... Um, that was similar to, for example, the Greek crisis in, in 2008, where suddenly people that had uh, really significant university degrees were standing in, in, in queues at soup kitchens. Um, I think part of the, the difficulty we have here, there's a, there's a very uh, interesting thesis, I think is called uh, Russell, 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 can I have a drink, please? Uh, <laughs> No. May, make it a triple. <laughs> Russell Jacoby, he wrote this, um, this very interesting uh, uh, book on, he's a sociologist, but I suppose you would call the, the work more of a, a political science work. It's called um, Social Amnesia. Um, and he discusses the, the, the fairly predictable... Um, patterning of, of, of human remembering, that there's a, um, a, a sort of memory limit of around maximum five years, um, after which people just really don't seem to be able to clearly recall that they've actually been through the same thing before. Um, and it sounds kind of shocking, but he, he, he builds his thesis on reasonably strong grounds. And pushing even beyond that, you know, 
the late 1800s in, in Europe was in principle a, a long recovery from years of instability. Europe is in a, a state of chaos for most of, of the middle of the 1800s. Lots of revolution going on. Really big political shifts moving through the, the events of, of the late 1700s in, in France um, to try and bed down the ideas of liberalism, of democracy, etc., etc. These are not quiet and comfortable births. There's a lot of violence. There's a, a lot of human movement going on. Um, the stuff that happens in the, in the, in the First World War, uh, the, the, I mean, a lot of the, the, the reasoning behind, the, behind what happens in the First World War had a lot to do with the attempts of, of certain superpowers trying to corral resources. Oh, gee, uh, haven't we heard that story somewhere before? You know, I mean, uh, uh, England and, and later on uh, the U.S. try basically to, um, to capture the, the oil market, knowing very well that the Bosporus is going to be a crucial passage um, for future energy politics. So you can choose any of these things. You can choose uh, just energy politics by itself. And, and you follow this, this, this arc through um, and understand that, I mean, at that stage, uh, when, when the Ottoman Empire was, was brought to its knees primarily by uh, these, these two superpowers, um, the, the trauma around uh, the, the, the realigning of, of the European map is unthinkable. I mean, uh, besides from the genocide, there's like a, a million Armenians die or are killed by, by Turkish forces. The maps are redrawn quite sort of arbitrarily. So Greece is split into, for example, Bulgaria, etc. A lot of these were, were, were real uh, uh, family networks that suddenly lived in two completely different countries. You know, uh, these discussions that people are having around Macedonia today are related to the events of a hundred years ago. They were not in any way untraumatic. They involved hundreds of thousands of people being forcefully moved. Uh, driven by various ethnic forces, etc., etc., stuff like that um, is not very far from our doorstep in 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 our current context. And we have to remember that it's not three years ago that war refugees. I mean, people whose homes had been blown up were being stopped by our neighbours and having their valuables taken from them to pay for the privilege to walk across the country that wouldn't allow them to stay there. Um, so yeah, sure, there's lots of good neighborly, neighborly stuff going on, but holy shit, when you raise that stuff up to the level of, of societies, of states, suddenly uh, there's this kind of truism of that. Resources are short, but we've got lots of values. Plenty of values here. So yeah, I think that that historic perspective is really, really important because we we are very much given to very easily forget. You know, we will continuously repeat 
never forget uh, and continuously forget. It's yeah. difficult. It's yeah. very, very difficult. Precisely. It's difficult for us to confront uh, this, this, this dark, bloody, wet trauma that uh, kind of frames human evolution. There are amazing things. There are absolutely breathtakingly beautiful, um, you know, deeply moving aspects of, of the human endeavor that I don't want to in any way devalue. But God knows we do not flinch from the most astonishing cruelty, particularly in groups, particularly in uh, these kind of institutionalized forms where we start talking about states. And I think that's what's, what's, what's really important in, in these big picture discussions is that if we do nothing and uh, people start to die, the idea that we have is that it's like a, a sort of pretty regular year with flu um, and that things are taken care of. We don't know what it's like when suddenly these services collapse when the morgues can't cope with all the bodies, when you have to start using uh, uh, huge containers and refrigerate them and stack bodies, and you're talking about thousands upon thousands upon mm. thousands, people Mass arriving breaks. with hearses, yeah. not with one or two bodies in, with hearses where the bodies are stacked to the brim and somebody has to deal with this. This shit is real. I've seen it with my own eyes. And that is not some comfortable news discussion. It's a place where people collapse into stress disorders. They just shut off their feelings completely. And you don't react in some sort of empathic solidarity. You react in ways that really we do not find easy to confront at all in these states of, of, of comfortable discussions. I think there's, you know, there's a there's a great video with 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 Edward Snowden, um, that was released I think about two years ago, where he had a, a video conference to a huge hall of people, mm, and there's a moment in the video where he says, the important thing, is to support and build and strengthen institutions. He said that. He said that. And that may surprise some people, but I can really, really understand what he's saying because these are like uh, 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 fail-safe mechanisms that you put in place because you know that when you panic or you run out of air or whatever the case is, you can't think straight. Institutions are there for that reason. And although corruption may occur, uh, although there may be any amount of crime or, or injustice, et cetera, et cetera. You need people to do those things, but institutions can provide frameworks for decision-making under a huge array of, of, of scenarios. And I think it's important to, to bear in mind that one of the reasons why in Sweden we can say, okay, let's, let's do this empathic solidarity thing. Um, everybody be responsible as, as far as you possibly can and we're going we're gonna to deal with this to the best of our abilities um, and so on. That happens precisely because there is such an astonishingly strong institutional grounding uh, in a society where people have the most amazing faith in authority. 
to the end of rent. So, but so, what does that mean? How, like in in the situation we're in now, in you know, a global pandemic, coronavirus causing COVID nineteen disease and death. What does that mean, that sort of both the human fallibility and the institutional fallibility? Well, I mean, for me, it's like the, in, 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 in that question is contained, uh, I think, the crisis of, of modern life, yeah? In that when you, whatever problem it is that you're dealing with, whatever challenge it is that you're dealing with, whatever great idea it is that people are dealing with, whatever new invention, there is this astonishing belief that we will succeed because we're just that good. We really believe in rationality and everything that it offers us. So we don't include in the scenario the full spectrum of human behavior and human development. We only do the stuff at the top of the spectrum because it's going to be fucking great. You know, we really are going to fly to Mars or we really are going to, uh, you know, be able to uh, have floating cars or uh, you know, <laughs> whatever the fuck it is. We, we have this fantastic uh, um, positive, opportunist inclination. And it's a really positive thing in, in, in all its different ways, whether it's about pr producing, uh, you know, digital magic or whether it's about uh, uh, democracy or uh, creating ideal societies or whatever. There's a, there's a, there's a spirit of idealism um, that goes along with the problem-solving uh, 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 inclination, all of which has amazingly good effects. We see it everywhere. There's, there's lots of good things to say about it. But at the same time, there's always this kind of like, gee, that was unforeseen. Um, we didn't expect those uh, rather unfortunate uh, collateral damages to incur. Well, you know, I mean, the story gets kind of boring after you tell it a thousand times. Yes, there's collateral damage, always. And maybe if we started to think about ourselves as fallible, maybe if we started to think about that the point is not to succeed, but the point is to actually um, make failure valuable, to organize for weakness, to... Uh, to 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 um, uphold dependency, um, which is what I think these kind of events make possible for us, um, then maybe we may cross an actual evolutionary threshold. We might be able to start to experience what it's like to not live in this absurd rationalist mind view in which if we really believe everything is going to go well, oh, shit, uh, we had X number of deaths, so we fucked up another part of the, the, the environment. But, oh, by the way, um, there's a new X iPhone, uh, whatever, you know. By the way, they managed to create batteries that can charge at twice the rate. Um, 
no, you know, slow down. Like, uh, deal with the relationships. That, that neighborly thing you're talking about, um, that kind of bases itself on something quite different from big system organizing. Mm -hmm. And I think that's also why a lot of this discussion is, is around uh, how badly the economy is going to do because of the virus. So everything's shut down. So this is, this is going to wipe out everything that we've achieved for the last however many years, blah de blah you know. I have real problems with that. I really do. And I think anybody that's 80 years old um, has a right to feel fucking nauseous when people talk like that. Because those people are actually the ones that worked for 60 years to make it possible how we live. So what would have to happen for that evolutionary step, that sort of... designing around the dependencies, around that neighborly solidarity sort of, without it being this group against that group, but, but sort of just you know, an, an ever shifting sort of this is the neighborhood and it just sort of increases. What, what, what will it take? I mean, will the global pandemic from the coronavirus be that catalyst that makes that sh shift possible? Or is this sort of way too small it's not killing off it? even close enough people for it to actually make some twist. What if it isn't a crisis that needs to be pulled off? Yeah. I mean, my, my first initial thought when, when you started speaking about it was we just need to have, you know, we need to reach a a nirvana, we need to reach, you know, the fucking top, you know, of whatever. We need to, we need to develop the economy so far that we can't draw shards of it anymore. That kind of. Mm. The thing with, with that is the whole system that we have around economy right now is, is built, as we've talked about previously, around a, a mentality of lacking. You know, I need, I need a new iPhone because, you know, then I will be creative. Or as, you know, I can pick a really recent uh, example, as, as Apple launched three new products last week, uh, where I sat drooling over my computer uh, thinking I need a new iPad for 13,000 krona, um, which is not money that I have. Did you say um, corona? 13,000 corona? 
<laughs> I need to turn in 13,000 people with corona. In order uh, to get a new iPad. <laughs> yeah, yes, they are. Now we're doing some songs. It's done. <laughs> This is what happens when we record late at night. Um, so what really needs to happen is, is a shift in mindset. And that doesn't have to do, it doesn't have anything to do with the system it, itself. You know, the system mm. is a result of our mindset. Mm. It's not the other way around. Mm. They feed themselves, absolutely. Mm. But our mindset is, mm. is resulting in capitalism mm. or, you know, the capitalism as we know it. Mm. Yeah, and also and, uh, I so, have to agree. Yeah. Sorry. Mm. No, but I'm also thinking because, you know, we've had the, the climate crisis movement. We've had Extinction Rebellion. We've had Greta Thunberg. You know, there's a mind to, mind, mindset shift in a lot of people yet it's not impacting the system it is the system but the mindset is very different well supposedly yeah but you know if if it was going to take a crisis um why did it need to be bigger than the First World War? Hmm. It should have been big enough. Hmm. I mean, the First World War was like comparable to the plague. And the then first World slap, War on was... the sp slap on the Spanish flu at the end of it, and it, it really should have, should have been enough. Yeah. Yeah. And what it was enough for uh, is in itself quite interesting. Because just like the, the, the plague, um, it, it invokes crises. I mean, after the First World War, uh, there's a huge, huge shortage of, of labor um, and certainly young men. So for the women's movement, this is a, a really great moment in history because suddenly there are only women available and a really important moment. I mean, if there wasn't... Uh, uh, the plague had very similar effects, according to some historians, that you see real social shifts that happen because of these things. And I think just to, to, to go further on that uh, point, Caspian, is what if it's not a crisis? Um, I think almost certainly it isn't a crisis. The crises are part of the, of the manuscript. Yeah. It's part of the thing we do. I think the thing that it takes is um, getting to the point of saying, we are all of this. We, we, this is how it is for us right now, with all the fuck-ups and all the technological advances and et cetera, et cetera. This really is who we are. The point is not to turn it into something else. The point is to turn it towards itself, to achieve the, the being thing, to be as we are right now is the premise for becoming something more, the premise for achieving that evolutionary step. But if we can't... Say that again. 
being everything that we are right now is the premise for achieving the next evolutionary step. We don't go there until we finished with this process. And we will finish with this process, whether or not it involves extinction or not, but we will finish with it before we get over to the next level of human development, before we get to that point of organizing for completely different premises in the same way that, that nature does. And we don't really get that the, the human species, for all of its, its astonishing dominance, is still a biological feature. It is being organized by nature in the same way that any other species that has managed to survive, to adapt or go extinct has been organized. We just aren't that clever. We still are primates and we're completely full of monkey business. <laughs> monkey business on game theory cocaine, you know, it's like, <laughs>